This episode of Infinite Horrors contains discussions of racism and sexual violence. What the f- Welcome to the Infinite Horrors Podcast. Killing your roommate's cat. Grounds to evict a roommate alone. What do you mean this is crazy? This is perfectly normal. Here, I'm going to reanimate your cat for the third time so that you understand where I'm coming from. You'd think, I can find a better roommate than this. Well, here we are to talk about Reanimator, the short story by H.P. Lovecraft and the subsequent 1980s film loosely based on the short story. Right. The short story is uh, is called Herbert West, Reanimator. Herbert West being the main character of the short story or more really the subject of it. The new Dr. Frankenstein. And yes. <laughs> I think the first thing we should do is absolutely unequivocally denounce the horrid levels of racism that H.P. Lovecraft is known for, first of all, and also the stuff that comes up in regards to that and his treatment of Black people in his writing and also Italian country people. Both were very horrible. But like specifically the language that dehumanizes Black men. And of course, the Black man has to be killed by a white man and be the most grotesque thing he's ever seen and compared to an animal and the language has to be it an object and not human like the previous white subjects and we in no way condone that way of thinking we in no way want to like idolize this way of thinking or this type of writing and we just want to first and foremost say that that's horrible (laughs) hp lovecraft is obviously a pretty touchy figure in general, but it would be hard to discuss the horror genre in general. A lot of the genre stands on his shoulders exactly. as, as problematic as they were. I'm really glad you did that, Maya, because it's a great thing to start off with. Yes. Not our favorite guy, <laughs> but we're going to have to talk about him today. Yes. And <laughs> right. it is a very interesting topic. And of course, it makes sense why the movie is only loosely based off of his first concept, right? And there's really not a lot that connects the story in the movie, which is something we'll get into. But without the actual horrible racism that comes from the story, the story idea itself is really interesting, right? Just a synopsis really quickly. Essentially, Herbert West is a ostracized medical student or doctor that comes through and wants to reanimate the dead and thinks that he can, and he's been working on this for ages, you know, just like Frankenstein. This is a story that's happened 100 years after Frankenstein for context. He goes to a secluded lab and starts taking recently deceased human cadavers, and then he devolves into murdering them in order to get the freshest bodies possible. And this, of course, creates a moral dilemma. So that's the brief synopsis. (laughs) I don't know if you have anything you would like to start off with, Sam? Let's start off with... Herbert West and reanimation and how the movie starts, right? So the movie starts with Herbert at a facility in a European country. Oh my God. Getting accosted by a league of accented scientists. Whiplash. Just a whiplash (laughs) start. (laughs) For trying to reanimate a, uh, a body. A colleague. 
Right. A colleague even trying to reanimate a colleague with glow stick goo. Yeah. Highlighter juice. Highlighter juice. <laughs> and then he gets arrested and, or not even arrested. We don't even see the in-between. <laughs> right. He's just suddenly at an American institution in Arkham. So there we go. For those listeners who aren't familiar, Arkham is kind of like the Castle Rock of the H.P. Lovecraft universe. Mm-hmm. Kind of this fictional New England town where a lot of H.P. Lovecraft stories intersect. And things get pretty wacky. <laughs> but first of all, Sam and I watched this together, and I got so angry throughout the entire story. I know that this is a stupid thing to get angry about, but how was he caught red-handed trying to reanimate his dead colleague and somehow allowed into a medical school where people's ethics are constantly a point of question. I know it's a goofy, campy comedy, but the science aspect of suspending my disbelief kept getting questioned further and further. And it was very frustrating. Men in business suits just get to walk into the operating room. Oh my God, with no PPE. No one's washing their hands. Everyone's in trash bags in the morgue refrigerator, except for the one body that you need to use. The scientific accuracy in this story is, from the get-go, is, is suspect. Which is, you know, something I feel the need to point out in contrast with the original story, because the original story is so specifically targeting some kind of scientific accuracy there. Right. Like he he's really adamant in explaining the biochemistry and physiology of it and takes a lot of time to really separate that out from the mysticism of it. So right. that's one big way that it differs from Frankenstein is the lack of religion. And he makes sure to like, in his language, distance it from religion. H.P. Lovecraft is approaching this story from a very scientific, biological level. We're reanimating tissue. We're not dragging some spirit from the void back into reality. I have quotes written down that I wanted to mention in terms yeah, of- Yeah, share them. I think it was primarily the- description of the act being diabolical and going against the puritanical work of modern science. But I think the historical context here is quite interesting as well, because this is written in the early 1900s, the 1920s, I believe. I I think it was written and published in like 1920, 22, something around there. And we're talking between Frankenstein and now, we've seen a revolution in biochemistry right? This emphasis of chemistry is really interesting because of all these major new developments in biochem and organic chem, like Carl Newberg, who is the father of biochemistry and started untangling the fermentation process. And in 1901, Rockefeller University became the first institution solely dedicated to biomedical research in the US. And H.P. Lovecraft is from America. And then we also have Moses Gomberg, who revolutionized how we think about basically organic reactions because he found organic free radicals, which are when you have an extra electron instead of your last bond in chemistry. So like, for example, we all know carbon has typically four bonds, but in this case, it'll have three and one free electron. And this was a really big stepping stone in understanding a lot of organic chemical reactions. So we're seeing a renaissance in organic chemistry. And to me, that's what I really latched on to reading it is this new scientifically driven investigation into human life and this idea of reanimation that Mary Shelley was 
first notably introducing in literature. I think a story like this is ripe to come out of that scientific revolution because such a big theme of science fiction-based horror is our fear of our technology getting ahead of ourselves. The Pandora's box element of technology and are we taking things a step too far? Herbert West is absolutely taking things many steps Mm -hmm. too far in this story. And I can imagine that in H.P. Lovecraft's world where living amongst the Industrial Revolution and all this change kind of happening would absolutely cause a lot of people to question What are we losing from this? This is also a major shift in time from very religious thinking to very scientific thinking in the public eye, because we're only a few years away from the Scopes Monkey trial, but when this is published. I am not familiar with this. Can you? Oh, it's the trial that questions whether or not evolution should be taught in schools. So a teacher was held on trial for teaching evolution instead of creationism, essentially. Mm -hmm. So this is a very radical time in how we're dealing with religion and science. And like, again, this is how I initially thought of this story in the writing, at Mm -hmm. least. Because again, the movie is very much goofier, very much taking this concept and just having fun with it. Um, To an extent, it's also very disturbing. But this sort of radical change and I guess volatile time in public thinking about organic science and evolution and physiology is something that really stood out to me while I was reading this and kind of mimics those fears. And I do like the evolution of how it's very clear we all knew that Herbert West would murder to get fresher human oh, beings. Yeah. And that would Only all, matter time. And the paranoia is there. And then he eventually gets destroyed by his own creation, which very much parallels Frankenstein. You know, yes. you know, the movie does take some parts of this book like the setting in Arkham the names West and then the ending with the DSO having his head cut off and then reanimated then you see that there's like a reanimated trunk of a human body with a talking head that was my favorite part of the story because you see a difference in how these two scientists trying to do the same science interact with their creations. Herbert West, like Frankenstein, abandons his creations and is scared by them. But the DSO creates a bond and like creates an army of the undead that work with him. Right. Which I think is really interesting. Another point that the movie brings up and also the story itself is what are the means to the end of scientific discovery? There's this great Futurama episode where Professor Farnsworth says something along the lines of scientific discovery was built on heaps of dead monkeys, you know. Jesus. <laughs> well, you know, it's more or less true. Uh, you know, I mean, there's at least a couple monkeys floating in space up there. It's <laughs> funny you know? bring that up because, you know, throughout the 1800s, a big part of physiological discovery is the illegal trade of human cadavers for scientific research. And, you know, Benjamin Franklin in London is known for being a big buyer of human cadavers. And that's why there were a ton of bones under his floor. So I think the horror isn't really that, at least how I interact with it, the lack of empathy for the human suffering seen when his creations awake, you know, for sure, the immediate fear and abandonment that comes with that, even though he says, no man could make this sound. It's like, they're suffering, you've brought them into a new form of birth. And then 
this is very on the nose in the film and they go, well, birth is painful. And it's like, well, yes, <laughs> um, it's also horrifying to be thrown back from the other side into this life. And even though they try really, really hard to divide religion and science and say the whole reanimation is the neurological electricity that's coming through, which is an attempt to describe neurological processes that govern how we think. The horror that is seen with the return of the body seems to indicate a part of the soul. Then they talk about like the soul kind of missing, and that's why we don't get a personality. And it's the fear of the personality coming back that's like a really big thing in the book. Uh -huh. um, they also take that maddening quality and bring that back with like the death of the father. There's parts that I wonder like where H.P. Lovecraft got some of his ideas. I know we were talking about the illegal body trade. Not a hundred years before H.P. Lovecraft was writing this story about a doctor doing whatever he has to do to get fresh bodies. There was that very famous Burke and Hare trial in Scotland where these two guys, William Burke and William Hare, were going around Scotland, digging up bodies, and then eventually making their own, murdering people and selling them to this doctor yeah. for his anatomy lessons for the operating theater. Mm -hmm. He'd be cutting bodies open, splitting them open for a whole bunch of people to watch him do what he does, all kind of facilitated by some very illicit and uh, illegal activity. You know, that's just a historical context of where H.P. Lovecraft might have gotten that idea. I'm sure it happened everywhere. There are still instances of bodies donated to science that aren't really truly consensually donated to science, and we still use operating wow. theaters to learn. It's unfortunately necessary to understand how humans work, right? There's those whole open fields uh, at, at parks where they just have decaying bodies sitting around so that forensic teams can study how does a body decompose at this temperature or under this much water. Mm -hmm. I hope everyone decides to do that with their body. It's not work for everyone, but it's important work. Yeah. I think Jeffrey Combs is fantastic. And I remembered him from one of my other favorite horror movies, Would You Rather. It's not like a phenomenal movie, but I think what it does is pretty succinct and well thought out. And it's another question, morality, how far would you go for XYZ type of film? Um, yeah. So that was fun. I forgot that he was in there. Jeffrey Combs does a brilliant performance as Herbert West. Just yes. the, what? What do you mean this is crazy? This is perfectly normal here. I'm going to reanimate your cat for the third time so that you understand where I'm coming from. You know, the grounds to evict a roommate alone, killing your roommate's cat. Yeah. And then to reanimate it twice, you'd think, I can find a better roommate than this. This poor girl who was added <laughs> in. Honestly, I have a lot of issues with her character. It's very exploitative. It honestly detracts from the goofiness when you think about the fact that she's really just there to have her physical body exploited for camera and not in a way that pushes a story forward or makes sense. It's just, we're going to throw in a very quick consensual sex scene and then later have a much longer non-consensual assault scene. Probably one of the most jarring consensual sex scenes. Oh my God. I remember when we were watching that, we both just like cracked up. It kind of inserts itself in, who knows how long it's been, but they're both just like, grunting and like sweating and rubbing up against each other and it's all very unsettling and for one second and then it's over very fast and then she's topless which is why i say it's exploitative and it's like 
you know, fine, whatever. But it's so jarring to see that very quick glossed over consensual sex scene. And then one of the most disturbing assault scenes I've ever seen in my life. And I completely forgot that that was in there because my brain, honestly, going into this, had mixed up Reanimator with The Brain That Wouldn't Die, which is a fantastic 60s movie with a similar premise. Mm -hmm. So I kept expecting to see that plot lines. I think I was like very taken aback by that. But we were both so uncomfortable during that scene because it doesn't make sense. No, it, and it's kind of like, so what's the point of this? Obviously, this happens in media all the time these days, but there's rape in this. And, you know, what's, why? What is this adding? It doesn't add to the camp. It doesn't add to the goofiness. It doesn't add to the story. It's like a cheap shot. You know, what's a way we can make a thrilling moment? Oh, this woman about to get, you know, it's yeah. just, it's a lack of creativity. And even if you were to make the argument that Carl Hill that other doctor that's there for some reason to also be a bad guy. Yeah. It's just to show how evil he is. Well, I think he does that throughout the rest of the movie. Yeah. He have just kept the campiness to that level. But I think when we were watching, we both didn't really understand the need for another villain on top of Herbert West. Right. And we both thought it was odd to paint Herbert West as a hero. This story already has a villain. And I think that's what the short story capitalizes on. And it kind of muddles up like, so who's bad here? Mm-hmm. They're both using the technology, but is Herbert West using it in a more noble way than Carl Hill? You know, it's it's a funny movie. Yeah, it's very goofy. And self-aware. You know, I think there's one part of that sexual assault scene, which the decapitated head is getting moved in close to, like, go down on this tied-down naked person. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Nauseating. (laughs) It was really bad. Honestly, really good special effects, though, like the practical effects. And I think John Carl Buchler is the one who was kind of in charge of all of that. Yeah. But from the opening scene with the eyeball grape explosion... And all the way up to like the decapitated head in the pan drinking blood, right? So good. And he has a lot of iconic campy character creation. And the cat was definitely what reminded me of his previous work on like Ghoulies and the first troll, not Troll 2, which is a separate group of people, but the first troll. Right. Where he has those gremlin-like creatures and the very uncanny valley weird puppeteering that I really love in Camp Horror. That was really fantastic. And the entire time, all I could hear in the music is basically a variation on the Psycho Suite by Bernard Herrmann. So the main theme from Psycho. Yeah, right. But it was very clear in the opening credits and then a variation on that was played all the time and I really hope it's (laughs) self-aware I'm not sure if it is (laughs) but unfortunately there's only so many notes but for all the listeners go listen and you decide for yourselves (laughs) it is very close today's episode of the infinite horrors podcast is brought to you by exalted funeral the one-stop shop for all your imaginative needs. At Exalted Funeral, you can pick up the latest issue of Infinite Worlds, Infinite Horrors, or any other zines available to satisfy your otherworldly and gruesome desires. Yes, and for all you tabletop adventurers tuning in, take your next campaign to the darkest reaches of the mind with Exalted Funeral's rich variety of dark fantasy, horror, and occult-based scenarios. 
And don't forget to check out their merch. Make your outsides as weird as your insides with their selection of shirts, sweaters, and even custom dice. All this and more can be found at exaltedfuneral.com. Follow them on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Exalted Funeral, all one word. And be sure to sign on to their mailing list to stay up to date on new releases, restocks, and other news. Thanks again to Exalted Funeral for sponsoring this episode. And then the other special effects artists that were included were Everett Burnell and Anthony Dublin, who actually went on to work on the Broadway show for Reanimator, the one where you had to plastic wrap all the seats because they had a splash zone for blood, which I'm sad I missed. Like a Shamu zone. Yeah. Oh, fun. Like a Guar concert. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen them. I like Guar, but I missed their last show here in Tucson. Their last show? Not like forever, but like they were in Tucson and I didn't go. My advisor went and we have a shared love of heavy metal. Uh Uh-huh. I got absolutely drenched in fake blood. That sounds amazing. Oh, it was great. Not 28 gallons of it, but something fairly close. Unless you look like Jamie Lee Curtis at the end of a Halloween shooting, are you really having fun? (laughs) And I know a few of these guys from their other movies. Everett Burnell, I know because he worked on Bill and Ted. He did the Neanderthal makeup for that, and I remember that. Uh-huh. Are they a big figure in the in the industry? No. no. Well, I guess, but that's the only thing. I know he worked on Pan's Labyrinth, I think. But I don't oh, think wow. he, it but that's like Del Toro design, you know, that's not sure. Like they're obviously a very skilled artist. They're able to make and apply a lot of prostheses, but prosthetics, prostheses, uh I have a friend who studies Latin. One of these days, he's going to hit me upside the head. Why? The the plurals? Just my poor pronunciation of Greek and Latin roots. That's okay. Thank you. It's not like there's anybody going to chase you down for mispronouncing that, except maybe your buddy. Yeah, he would. (laughs) Speaking of really goofy movies, have you ever seen The Lawnmower Man? (laughs) So I've read the Stephen King short story that it's based off. I didn't even know it was a Stephen King short story. Yeah, yeah, it is. From what I hear, they couldn't be more different. And I know they also made a second Lawnmower Man as well. Have you seen that? I have not, because one was enough. Oh. (laughs) But I know that Anthony Dublin worked on that, and that's like the only thing I could recognize that he was also on. The 24 Gallons of Blood is a lot. That is a remarkable amount of blood. So I was going to say, like, who's the screenwriter of this? Three people wrote this movie, right? It was Dennis Paoli, William J. Norris, and Stuart Gordon. I can't really say I'm familiar with any of them. Dennis Paoli wrote this one. He also wrote Ghoulies 2. I know you mentioned Ghoulies 1 earlier. Their lead makeup designer worked on Ghoulies and created the Ghoulies as like Uh a character. They're all very good at campy horror creations, which I, I love, you know. But the amount of blood reminds me of Blood Feast, which is regarded as one of the big slashers of the time. Okay. I think it was in the 50s, if I remember correctly. But it was known for using a ridiculous amount of blood. A feast's worth of blood. Yeah, a feast's worth of blood, hence the name. I can't say I'm familiar with it. What's that about? From what I remember, it's essentially your classic cut up a bunch of girls because a cannibal serial killer is on the loose type of slasher storyline. Yeah, Yeah, just your classic (laughs) slasher. But, you know, it's there because it was one of the first really gory things on the big screen. 
I actually don't know if it predates Cannibal Holocaust or not off the top of my head. It wasn't as censored. I know that. Oh, wow. Are there any like killings of turtles and things like that in it? No. <laughs> just just a lot of bright red blood and pretty girls. Ah. Which is all you need. The bread and butter of <laughs> of Hollywood horror cinema. Hey, it's the reason The Hunger is one of my favorite movies of all time, you know. <laughs> but yeah, honestly, their opening weekend wasn't that crazy. It was only like five hundred thousand dollars. For uh for, for reanimator? Yeah. Well, considering uh, the time it came out and also this being like a low budget indie film, like I I think their budget is somewhere in the ballpark of a million dollars. And for a movie like this, the era it came out, it's not like these days where indie movies succeed to a level that back then people couldn't have even comprehended. Mm. I mean, there were obviously some breakthroughs here and there, but for a horror movie of this kind of production budget and caliber. I think it made $2 million in the box office, which is pretty substantial for what it is. How very saw. <laughs> exactly. Speaking of lots of blood. Jeez. <laughs> hey, I'll take creative gore any day. I don't want to get too off. To, do you like Saw? Are you a big I are love you fan Saw. Of that? Oh my God. The torture. But not because of the storyline, because the storyline's crap, but like the practical effects usage. We should do an episode on Saw so I can go off on how much I love it and appreciate it. Sure. Absolutely. But we should also think about doing an episode on The Brain That Wouldn't Die, having talked about Reanimator, because that's the one that I was mistaking Reanimator for halfway through because i think i've watched it a few more times than i've watched reanimator and couldn't remember the second half of reanimator just sort of the beginning campy bits but it's a much more reserved movie based off of the same story i'm pretty sure that it's based off of the reanimator short story okay black and white 60s girlfriend dies in a car crash and then he reanimates her head just her head yeah so the brain that wouldn't die a little talking head on a plate wrapped in bandages you know very old special effects but very very fun what happened to the rest of her body i honestly don't remember so this is why we should rewatch it <laughs> yeah oh man I, yeah why why you just bring back her head it's because it's a lot more fun to have someone kneel under a table you know <laughs> And, you know, Pretty Girls in Bandages with Elsa Lancaster, you know, we love it. Also, I I would like to mention really quickly that given my love of Don Giovanni, the end scene where he gets dragged into the fog with intestines, nonetheless, like from Mm -hmm. one of his creations is so reminiscent of the end scene of Don Giovanni being dragged to hell to me. That imagery perfectly overlapped for me. Oh, it's perfect. Gotta get your comeuppance. Yeah. You know, you don't come out of these stories typically scot-free. Again, Dr. Frankenstein disappearing into the Arctic. Right. And then in the story, Herbert West disappearing into the Netherland behind the plaster wall of his basement. Mm-hmm. Getting ripped to shreds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Woof. There's also a weird forced incestuous component here that I I don't understand. Oh, between the the dad and the daughter? Yeah. Very weird. This is obviously like a a campy classic horror. And I love how Herbert West was portrayed. I think that's a really 
fun, goofy way to take on a very horrific Lovecraft character. It's a very good example of a blending of two genres. There's always standalone horror, but you know, you can always mix your peas and carrots with horror too, like horror comedy. Mm -hmm. We'll go over many different examples of horror comedy. Absolutely. And outside of that very icky last sexual assault scene, the movie is objectively very funny. Oh, the cat scene. So good. The cat scene's wonderful. I mean, part of the appeal of the, a movie like this is the campiness and simplicity of kind of the props. Like the cat is clearly this puppet that's taped to his back yes. as he's trying to wrestle it off of himself and jumbling up to the camera in some weird shot. It's some funny stuff. And I wonder, my question for you is compared to the short story from which is based off of, which is very serious and written like a scientific paper. What does adding humor to it do for you? I think it really tries to do its best to divest from the racist, eugenic-y thought process that he has. And I think putting it into a goofier context really makes fun of Lovecraft and you know, mm. makes the tone a lot different than what he was intending and makes yeah. fun of Herbert West, right? Like this character sure. that was hell bent on subverting science and had very racist views. And it starts off with that tone so well. And I think it started to take itself too seriously as it went on, if I'm being honest. Yeah. And I think it really lost itself with the addition of Dr. Hill. With this new villain. Yeah. Right. Lost a bit of the direction. It's kind of like, you know, when you're trying to make a Hollywood movie, the producers would be like, well, we need a girl and we need her to be hot and we need her to get naked at some point. Where can we fit her into the story? Which is why that character in the movie, you know, no offense, the actress, she did a great job. Mm -hmm. Everything I say comes with a... These people are talented and they made something great. And, yes. you know, my opinions are my own. And I don't mean to say that these people are bad at what they do. But her inclusion in the story feels like you were saying very much like, is she just here to get naked and to get sexually threatened to heighten tension? And a part of that is yes. And it's not as if there's a love triangle either. Although Dr. Hill does want her and he kind of speaks with that British accent, just so gross. as all villains do. Like you put it, they don't say laboratory. A villain says laboratory. You know? That's how you know they're evil is if they have a yeah. vague European accent because this is America. Very Lovecraft to have the villain be a foreigner. Oh, yes. <laughs> Sorry, these pesky Italian countrymen who don't understand anything are so backwards. Oh, my God. Even if their child dies, it doesn't matter, you know. <laughs> Reading that in the short story, because his thoughts on people of color are very well known. Oh, yes. But I didn't remember such an explicit reference to white foreigners. And in that story, like you just mentioned, the diatribe against people from Italy is horrific. Mm -hmm. Like, truly. Ugh. It matches the rhetoric used against Romani peoples as well. It's that lower class country, not high society. Right. The, the how we think about people who live in the country here, right? Not white Anglo-Saxons. Yeah. Yeah. So right. that's very unfortunate. But it's still very clear that he values white lives over black lives in the way that he uses his rhetoric. He goes out of his way to describe that the first 
horror we see committed by one of his creations is the black man that he turned escaping and eating a white child and immediately being put down like an animal. And that formula that he was using on all the white subjects oh my God. wasn't working on the black subjects, which given what we know about Lovecraft and yeah. sort of the they era- They have it, to be physiologically different, right? Exactly. Like, weird Jeez. eugenics language again. I also noted that. That was really bad. It, ugh. Again, hard to talk about Lovecraft. Hard to talk about sexual assault, too. These were not easy things to get through. But the ideas and the thought process that went into them are very interesting. And I was thinking about it while you were talking, and I think the only real use I can see for this additional woman character in this movie is that at the very, very end, we see Dan, who's like our narrator in the original story, I guess, finally lose his moral compass as a doctor and inject her with the reanimation fluid, which, you know, sets up for our subsequent sequel. But it's this idea that whatever lasting reservations he had were absolutely marred by his love for her. So I think it's especially hard for me to look at something that's supposed to be self-aware and goofy when one of my favorite movies, Buckaroo Banzai, came out around the same time and does a much better job at that. And especially like the archetype of the exploited woman character with Penny, you know? So I think having that context just made it hard for me to really let that go while watching this and really ruined how I've seen it. I understand that. Like you, I didn't remember a lot of those more problematic moments, you know, until I saw it again recently with you. So bringing her back to life at the end, I think that's, you know, again, with horror, how do we deal with death? Reanimator suggests that grief can be perhaps alleviated with bringing people back from the dead. We see that in movies like pet cemetery. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting concept. And the idea that like when these people come back, they don't bring their old soul with them. Exactly. But even in the reanimator, that's kind of question because we see Halsey, her father, the other doctor, the runner of the hospital who gets killed by one of the first creations like the juggernaut type and crushed and then reanimated by Herbert West out of a mercy. He's trying to be helpful, but, you know, he's misguided, he's unemotional, and just a robotic sort of... It's a robotic solution to death, right? It's, oh, you've died, I can fix this, instead of going through the human process of grief. And you see that he kind of loses all sense of self, and he becomes like a drone in a straitjacket for our other villain, Dr. Hill... But then at the very end, gets some of his personality back and tries to save his daughter and his daughter's boyfriend. Right. Which is very strange and like questions how much of your personality comes back and contrasts a lot with Frankenstein where this mindless beast isn't really what we see in Frankenstein's monster. It's a human with a soul that's been brought back and can be taught. So I I see that as a juxtaposition. But further going back into how we deal with grief, like you mentioned all these other movies, and that also makes me think of the other way of dealing with this, where you see putting down a reanimated form of your loved one as mercy, which is the opposite of what we see here. So like a lot of vampire movies or werewolf movies, etc. You stick the stake in the heart of your loved one when you see them undead, for sure. Or like Evil Dead your girlfriend gets possessed. What do you do? Lock her in the <laughs> Yeah. 
takes a lot of emotion to try to wrestle with that. I got a question for you. Is this a zombie movie? I mean, I guess. It's not your traditional zombie movie. Well, what is a traditional zombie movie? Like Night of the Living Dead. I guess what I mean is like the source of them. You know, Night of the Living Dead is what? Like a comet is is passing Earth and it reanimates the corpses. It's a funny thing with zombies. It's like, what are their sources? I guess this is well, a Well, zombies story. are a real thing. Sure. It comes from Haitian voodoo, right? So, like voodoo which and is, voodoo. Voodoo in yeah. itself was created because of the slave trade. So a lot of African traditional religions had to be hidden when people were enslaved. So they were being forced to conform to Christianity. So they had to hide the religion in the guise of Christianity. And that's why we have voodoo. But there was a practice of right. zombification, which was often practiced. And I as someone who does not practice this religion, I can't claim to remember the religious purposes of it. But, you know, I think the fear of the unknown is definitely there because I think a lot of people have a fear of, you know, non-Christian religions, which we can see within America quite often. And I think that really helped force zombie horror into the limelight, but also like a bunch of crazy undead corpses trying to kill you is scary i would not want to be in that situation but it also makes me think of that sketch from key and peel of the racist zombies so you know (laughs) to your point voodoo and hoodoo having that stigma against it you know the common stereotype of you know cutting heads off chickens and drinking chicken blood when christianity does that you know christians metaphorically eat the flesh and blood of Christ every Sunday. Of a zombie. Of Jesus, who is a zombie. Right. Our, our most famous... It's also horrifying as a concept. But obviously, the all zombie movies are not inherently that fear of an unknown religion and are much purer in their goals. But, you know, then we also have reanimation or animation of inhuman beings, right? So, like... I would count this as demonic possession and giving demons the ability to move like a human within a human, but also things like the island of Dr. Moreau, which I know I've referenced when we were watching this movie together, because I kept saying it reminded me of the island of Dr. Moreau, the uh, Wells story. An unhinged scientist taking his experiments to the nth degree as far as they can possibly go. And creating inhuman beasts that eventually turn on the morally corrupt scientist. Right. And, you know, this, again, ties us back to the original story because West is constantly criticized by the medical professionals that are telling him that what he's doing is inhuman and he can't do this. And it's like, yeah, that makes sense. It's very amoral, you know, especially from a Christian standpoint. You you know, you bury your dead, you let them rest. And then on top of that, he makes... A clear distinction because he can't use the embalmed bodies from the Christian church, which is why he has to go to the potters, hmm. which, you know, don't have that. Uh, but yeah. when he succeeds in reanimation and then his creations die, those same scientists are very eager to dissect what he's created, right? So right. Yeah. It's this full circle. Hypocrites. <laughs> but it's a question of morality. Are human bodies precious? Are we just sentient sacks of meat? I'm an organ donor. I very much 100% think once whatever is clicking up here decides to tune out and go somewhere else, what's left behind, I can't take it with me. So, you know, mm-hmm. reanimate it. 
play with it, prod it, you know, <laughs> throw, throw it at a wall. I don't know. There's all sorts of fun stuff you can do with dead bodies. <laughs> Maybe we'll see you uh, decaying in a field in the name of science. I can only hope so. Or reanimated and decapitated and given a wax head. Oh, yeah. Yes, please. Speaking of great <laughs> practical effects, yes. the wax head yes. is wonderful. And like you had mentioned when we were watching the movie, how in the short story, the doctor actually gave the decapitated torso a wax head. A handsome waxed head. Yeah, yeah, a very good looking wax head. And then when they did the film, it's not even a wax head. It's a plaster model. You know, half of it is constructed and the other half is skull and, and, and yeah. tendon and tissue. Which provides a very good situational comedy of him trying to keep the side that's human towards the security guard as he backs into <laughs> the operating theater, yeah. which is excellent. Just a great film overall. It does do goofy comedy well when it tries to do goofy comedy, you know? And that's the difficulty of, of something like Reanimator or Evil Dead or these horror comedies is that you got your feet pretty well planted into objectively very different genres. But when you get down to the nitty gritty of it, Jordan Peele is a great example of this, of how horror and comedy have more in common than you think. Mm -hmm. Even though you still got to straddle these two genres, they do mesh well together. I think the movie does a generally really good job of that. Like you said earlier, it certainly curdles into something that takes itself more seriously, maybe even suffers a little bit for it. But some of the best prosthetic work is at the end, right? And honestly, one of the scariest parts for me, and you had also mentioned this earlier, is at the end when all of the subjects rise from their gurneys and you realize it's not just one reanimated corpse they're dealing with, but like an army of them. One's a burn victim, one's missing a third of his skull, and it all looks incredible. They did their work. Yeah, and that. the naked individuals add to the animalistic beast-like quality that they're trying to portray there, right? The lack of right, humanity right. just... Where are their clothes? Yeah. Naked zombies. Naked zombies. Horrifying. I mean, I would rather be chased by a clothed zombie than a naked zombie. Which also would make us question why Halsey, the only one who seemingly regains parts of his personality by the end, is clothed. Has his clothes on. Yeah. A good observation. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like protects his daughter through paternal instinct. Even though he literally served her up to this terrible yeah. main villain, <laughs> which is just, right. again, so disturbing. Sad and consistent, yeah. but we'll yeah. we'll we'll forget. We'll it. call it a moral arc. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a great short story. Once you get past all the really problematic parts, it's a great movie. Once you get past all the problematic parts, I would recommend this movie to anyone with you know a passing interest in horror comedy. Would you? I yeah, especially understanding the content you're going to see, and right to take it with a grain of salt and to just enjoy the practical effects here and especially Jeffrey Combs' performance, which again is my favorite part. Mm -hmm. And I honestly don't think I've seen the second film. And is there a third? I, don't, I only remember oh, two. Oh, there's three. Okay. Oh, there's, no, there's three. I have not seen the other two either. Okay. Re-reanimated and re-re-re-re-animated. No, the second movie is called Bride of Reanimator. Yes, that is true. And the third is called Beyond Reanimator. More Frankenstein connections there, right? Bride of Frankenstein, Bride of Reanimator. Yep. 
I wonder how our opinions would develop if we watched those as well together. That would be a fun circle back episode. Yeah. A re reanimator. We, we, <laughs> we rediscover reanimator with new context of the other movies under our belts. That would be a good one. Mm-hmm. Let's clock that down. <sighs> this was good. Reanimator in the books. Yeah. Maybe not dead for long. Maybe we will inject it with some highlighter juice in the near future, but you know. We'll reanimate this conversation again. For now, this is the third time we've killed the severed cat, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Infinite Horrors Magazine is a full-color, ad-free print magazine from the creators of Infinite Worlds. You can get your signed and hand-numbered direct edition copy of Infinite Horrors Number 1, plus Infinite Horrors merch, at infiniteharsmagazine.com. You can get the newsstand edition also at exaltedfuneral.com. And be sure to check out the Infinite Worlds podcast. Find us online at Infinite Horrors Magazine and at Infinite Worlds Magazine or infiniteharsmagazine.com and infiniteworldsmagazine.com. You can reach out to me personally on Instagram at harsamw. And you can find me on Instagram at heavymetalfruit underscore. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.